I'd walk through the forests, the mountains, and the dunes. I'd swim the rivers, the seas, and the ocean. And I'd listen. I'd listen to the voices of wilderness. The unheard sounds and the forgotten stories that give us the answers humanity is searching for. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Hi, everyone. I'm Jackie, Jackie Beatrice, the host of today's podcast. To dive right in, since our inception, we have always worked to keep alive the values that made but a small seed what wild is today. Respect for nature and for each other, integrity and community. Since our founders defied the racist policies of apartheid to save the southern white rhino from extinction, we have always tried to forge unity and collaboration around the world. With the UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15, right around the corner, taking place in Montreal, Canada, between the 5th and 17th of December, we want to make sure we're fighting for what we always have, people and nature. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from individuals who don't only fight for nature, but who fight for people and justice in hopes of a more balanced and sustainable world. I'm going to run you through a bit of the basics here before we dive right in. So indigenous peoples and local communities, IPLCs, are the best leaders of biodiversity conservation. Not only are indigenous lands home to 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity, but they're also the location of close to 40% of the remaining wild areas on planet Earth. I'm sure you've heard this fact. It's a famous one, and it's an important one. When it comes to conservation, even the most protected areas cannot come close to matching the outcomes produced by indigenous stewardship of land. I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to think about it. What could be possible for our biosphere if we used the necessity of protecting and conserving at least half of Earth's land and seas, please remember the scientific consensus 30 by 30, is just a milestone on the way to half, as an opportunity to expand indigenous land tenure and restore land to IPLCs. The IUCN World Conservation Congress convened in Marseille, France, in September 2021, where the world's leading conservation scientists and leaders voted in an overwhelming majority to formally recognize the scientific consensus that conserving half of Earth's land and seas is necessary to successfully address the dual existential crises of mass extinction and climate change. As a part of this agreement, they also recommended that at least 30% of Earth's surfaces should be conserved by 2030, and to do so in full partnership with the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples. 
as the world meets once more for the Convention on Biological Diversity to seemingly decide again on what was already agreed upon over a year ago. We at WILD continue to advocate for the conservation of half of Earth's land and seas, with an emphasis on the restoration and expansion of Indigenous land tenure. Join us. Okay, let's dive right in. First, we'll be chatting with Amy Lewis, WILD's Vice President and Policy of Communication. Thank you, Jackie. So I'm the Vice President of Policy and Communications at the WILD Foundation. And for the last five years, I've been a part of an international team that has been working to protect half the planet. The reason we're doing this is because that's what the scientific consensus says is needed to both effectively address the climate crisis and mass extinction. This spatial target, half, is incredibly controversial, probably even more controversial than keeping temperature rise under 1.5 degrees. World leaders are going to meet to agree on spatial targets. How much nature do we need to survive? And their answer to that question is interesting because it's not based in science, it's based in politics. Acting now and acting quickly is important and everyone knows that, so world leaders are responding and framing this COP in terms of ambition. But their ambition is to say we need to protect 30% of the planet by 2030. Unfortunately, what they define as ambition is actually just the status quo. What Amy's saying here is that more than 30% of Earth's lands are already conserved through a combination of protected areas, 17% to be exact, and the territory stewarded by indigenous peoples and local communities is also 17%. If we set a target of 30 by 30, we're going to spend the most important decade that we have to address climate and um, mass extinction we're basically going to spend that going backwards as opposed to forwards. So we are advocating at the COP that half needs to be the target, especially 50 by 30. And that's actually something that's already been stated. The Vatican has endorsed 50 by 30. There's a movement right now with numerous conservation organizations that are endorsing 50 by 30. Even back at the IUCN World Conservation Congress in Marseille, France in 2021, the world overwhelmingly decided there that half is the scientific consensus. It's important to go forward for COP15 to at least recognize that half is the scientific consensus and ideally also commit to protecting half. It's important to recognize that this is an opportunity to correct historic injustices as well. The absolute best stewards of nature are indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples have 80% of the world's biodiversity on their lands. They, even though they're only 5% of the population and they're enormously disadvantaged when it comes to economic resources, they also are stewarding approximately 40% of the remaining wildlands. And we need to put indigenous people at the fore of this movement as leaders of 
of this movement, we need to learn from them, and we also need to double the amount of their land tenure and probably increase by about tenfold the amount of resources they're given to maintain their lands. This is really an opportunity to restore lands and to create a more just world as well. And the more we advocate for them, uh, the faster we're going to be able to achieve this target. It can seem like um, our own individual actions don't matter, but actually every voice matters. Every single person sharing with their networks and with the rest of the world how they feel matters. All of those people add up to influence. Um, and so we are powerful and we are influential. We're moving right along and we're getting you guys all of the info. So next up, we have James Rattling Leaf Sr. James is the coordinator of climate partnerships for the Great Plains Tribal Water Alliance. He is a member of South Dakota's Rosebud Sioux Tribe. James is amazing. I really enjoyed my conversation with him. There's so much that we could have fit in here, but we're trying to keep things concise for all of you. But he's really giving us a perspective of why it's so critical to include traditional knowledge and traditional voices, indigenous voices in the conversation, in the solutions, and really prioritizing that and bringing that back into the fold. It's something that we haven't always done, obviously, and it's something that we need to start prioritizing. Hear James out. Well, let me begin by introducing myself in the Lakota language. Um, we say, how me chante washte. James uh, I greet you today uh, from my heart with a handshake. I am known as James Rattlingleaf. I am a member of the Rosewood Sioux Tribe. I find myself today um, working in many different aspects of, of the work that we're going into called conservation. Uh, one of the areas that I, uh, I'm focusing on these last few years is something called the Geo-Indigenous Alliance, emerging indigenous-led organization that uses earth observation, data, science, and technology to protect and sustain tribal cultural heritage. Also, I serve as an indigenous consultant, and I work with organizations in helping them prepare to work with indigenous people, both on, related to land, environment, climate change, uh, traditional knowledge, and economic development. Uh, a lot of the areas that I work at also is with the youth. So I'm looking forward to this conversation about how we support our next generation to deal with the issues that they do, we have to deal with now, but also... Um, how do, we, how do we prepare them to go forward with the, all different types of knowing that's important to address the complex problem like climate change and, and uh, biodiversity conservation? This is my first um, effort in being invited to come to the table uh, at an Indigenous-led uh, meeting on December 6th, which is a Tuesday, right before the COP starts. And there we'll be coming together to get to know each other, first of all, reconnect with each other since the pandemic, but also begin to lay out you know, what's important in terms of what we need to address together, bringing awareness to our work at the Geo-Indigenous Alliance. What role does Earth Observation, Data and Science and Technology play, for instance, in the protection and monitoring of, of Indigenous lands? Um, I think also in this work that we want to begin to address those components of what a strategy would look like in terms of pre preparation and having uh, young people, for indigenous young people, work with the data, work with the science, but also 
promote the importance of traditional knowledge. Let's not forget about the role that plays. And I think indigenous voices are matter in this conversation. And I think we need to strengthen those voices. And we need to think about, again, kinds of strategies that, that advance our voices, advance our self-determination, protects our rights, and looks at all these frameworks, like legal frameworks and such. How do we support indigenous people like attending meetings, like participating in things? So I think funding is an important part of this. I'm really anxious to hear from the leaders who've been working on this for a long time. What's the progress in terms of funding indigenous groups to work on these conservation areas? Not only just participation at meetings, but also projects and events and programs, things that really advance our ideas and how we protect our biodiversity. I think the third thing really is, again, is not assuming that we understand the issues, but really developing a clarity of what the issues are, both from our perspective, but also your perspective as allies and partners. And finally, I think that we need a, a collaborative platform. These tools we have today, the technology we have today, we really have to utilize those in terms of bringing awareness and education to all parts of the, of the world. Sometimes I think that, you know, we're ignored and, uh, and because we're such a small number as indigenous people collectively that we're not, we're not huge in terms of numbers. But if, you'll, if, if people begin to understand not only that, but also the value that we bring to the table, the, the, you know, the historical connections, the, the traditional knowledge again, and really even thinking about the spiritual dimension of this kind of work as well. Let's not forget that and how we bring those processes and understandings of the world forward. We also need to also understand, really think about the, the collective wisdom of indigenous people. For so long, we focused on Western science to address these issues, and we know that that's not enough. I'm a proponent of science, Western science, but I also know it's not enough. We need to bring traditional knowledge into that, we need to understand how those two work together. And again, we need the will and the fortitude and, and the courage to make these decisions that's going to protect our biodiversity, which means protecting our planet. When you bring indigenous people together, you bring the right people together, I think right things happen. And I think one thing that I'm going to look for and observe, and again, it's not my decision how the meeting happens, but I'll be there, is I'm looking really forward for leadership. I think the types of leadership that really people can follow from the indigenous side, for sure. When we talk about these issues like, like our earth and our planet, it's important to make that spiritual connection to it because we still have those things today. For so long, you know, th those were impacted by colonization. So if you know the history, you know, there's this movement now to decolonize those things, what happened to us, which means bringing back our ways of knowing, strengthening our ways of knowing and sharing those ways of knowing as appropriate. I'm looking forward to how our knowledge is protected how our data is protected, what kind of frameworks are there in place now, and what do we need to strengthen going forward to protect that knowledge, protect that data when we talk about these partnerships and these projects going forward. Um, I'm also looking at equity and equality. Uh, for so long, conservation organizations have led the way and have addressed, have received the funding from, from philanthropy and such. So I'm looking for a change, a change in philanthropy, how it funds these things, and I'm hoping that there will be a better model how to support indigenous people with philanthropy, where there is more of a direct funding and capacity development with indigenous organizations and indigenous people to handle the money, to work with the money, to address those things most important. You gotta remember again, some of these communities are in intergenerational poverty. So I think there's a role here to play that in, in terms of how we do this work that's gonna raise everybody's standard of living. I live in America, I have had the benefit of what we have here, but many other indigenous people don't have that. They're still fighting every day for their rights. There, there's violence and there's oppression there yet today.
What I'm hearing and what I'm learning from other partners who will attend is the importance of Indian land or indigenous land tenure rights. We're all asking for how that could come together again to protect our rights. And I think with that, then it gives us the responsibility like we've always had, but again, a little bit stronger in terms of how we make decisions about the land. I think it's always been about decision-making about this. You know, we want our voices heard. We want to be at the table and those things that affect us, you know, we want to say in that. And I think that's what I'm hearing from others when they talk about these spatial targets and, you know, who decide those boundaries, those spatial targets. And I think that's critical. And so there has to be a, a framework that allows Indigenous voices, uh, strengthens those Indian 10 linear rights. If not, if there's not there, then how do we make them there? We need nation states, obviously, to promote that. I do believe that um, Indigenous people, we don't know when it started, but we know that we've had a role in taking care of the land, the water, and all the four-leggeds on the earth, you know. So it's it become our responsibility to do that. Now we live in a different world with so many pressures, development pressures on our land. And so I think it's, it's a very difficult challenge for us. And so we, as a minority group, for instance, trying to strengthen our position, strengthen our rights, and thinking about the generations to come, you know, we have a long way to go. But we're also committed to a better future, and I think that's what we got to do. So COP can be helpful. Again, Wild Foundation has a role to play, and I'm, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be part of the discussion with you and looking forward to what we can do together. Alrighty, so moving right along, we're going to be chatting with Yen Perico next. Yen is the program director of Coalition Wild, which is Wild's youth leadership program. She does incredible work. She will be in attendance at COP15. Um, she's really going to be bringing the youth perspective to this and prioritizing youth voices, opinions, perspectives in the solution to what we're facing. So my name is Yen Perico, and I'm the director of Coalition Wild. This is the, the Young Professionals Network of Wild Foundation. So it's a for-youth, by-youth organization. Our core um, goal is to not only equip young people in uh, the conservation sphere, but also integrate youth voices into bigger institutions. And that's where we come in, um, in terms of the COP15. We realize that we have a role in sharing the knowledge about uh, Nature Needs Half, especially amongst youth. Um, I feel like there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about Nature Needs Half, for example, or 30 by 30. And now that we have the advantage of, you know, like coming from the, the source of the knowledge, we feel like this is also our, our responsibility to make sure that everyone is well informed about Nature Needs Half. And also on top of that, Coalition Wild by itself, like we want to understand more about uh, COP15 and how we fit into the bigger picture because that's really important for us in setting our long-term goals. I feel like we have, you know, the responsibility and also our own motivation to to go there uh, at the COP15. And also, of course, like all of our partners are also going. Um, it would be great to have all like this collaborative uh, movement or space at the COP. It's going to be a, a huge um, convention. I expect that 
there will be like different pavilions. And we already know like few pavilions, such as there's going to be a youth pavilion by Gibbon. There's a the nature positive pavilion of IUCN. There's the Canadian pavilion. I'm just not sure how the setup's going to look like. And we hope that it will be close to the plenary session because what I heard from COP27 is they have to go walk far from the pavilions where a lot of the young people would be um, staying or like, you know, conducting their events. And then they would have to walk a lot to go to the plenary sessions where the decision makers will be at. So I hope that they wouldn't isolate us, that they would include us and not just you know, include us genuine with a genuine intention and not just a tokenistic way. As part of the youth movement, I feel like this is always our worry that we're not there to be equal partners, but we're just there as tokens. I just want to point out that this is not, not the time to do dilly-dally. <laughs> um, I really believe that, you know, and everyone says this as well. Nature provides us, you know, our essential needs. And it's basically breathing life into us. So I hope that, you know, we don't turn our back on nature. It's unfortunate that COP15 was postponed several times. Yet when you see the official CBD documents, there are still some targets in the post-2020 global biodiversity frameworks that are full of brackets. So this means a lot of these political leaders haven't decided on these matters. But I hope that, you know, this will be the chance for the world leaders to gain some sort of urgency, even just like a fraction of what the youth have, because I, I know that youth are so urgent in terms of these matters. And I'm certain that the youth will not let the post-2020 global biodiversity framework um, failure, just like the IG targets. So all we're asking from the youth sector, from the youth sphere, is that meet us halfway in terms of urgency, meet us halfway in terms of ambition. And also for the youth, I'm hoping that they take the time to understand nature needs half and be open-minded as well and know that we're coming from you know, like a, a good space and we're not here to, to do or, or to pursue all of the things that they're worried about. So understand why Coalition Wild is in full support of this mission. We keep on asking government officials to be more ambitious in their targets. So my call to action for them is to let's match that level of ambition that we're asking for. Last, but most certainly not least, we have Gwen Bridge. Gwen is an environmental scientist and conservationist of the Saddle Lake Cree Nation. She has so much information to share and is so passionate and incredibly brilliant at what she does. She and I talked a little bit about um, the importance of supporting Indigenous peoples in having authority over their land their decision-making, their path forward, and supporting those decisions, whatever they may be, conservation-related or not, because there is a distinction there. So go ahead and dive in and see what Gwen has to say about that. I'm Gwen Bridge. I'm a consultant. I'm a member of the Satellite Cree Nation, which is in Alberta, Canada. Um, I'm half English, and I work with Indigenous nations to continue to advance their rights and assertion of rights and um, authority to manage the landscape in the way is in accordance with their traditional laws. 
I went to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in Marseille, which was an amazing event. And so I hope that this event sort of lives up to what was happening in Marseille, where there was a lot of dialogue, a lot of interaction between sort of the NGOs and community representatives, as well as the delegates. So I really appreciated that. So I'm kind of hoping for a really collaborative vibe, a really lots of conversations. Specifically, I'm hoping for uh, conversations between uh, those Indigenous peoples in Canada those Indigenous peoples in North America, and then, of course, internationally. The world is relying upon Indigenous peoples to create this pathway forward to the, both the preservation of biodiversity, the protection of water quality, ecological function, and even mitigation for climate change through nature-based solutions, which um, one of my friends, James Radlin Leafs, says, Indigenous-based solutions. So I really appreciate that kind of slant. And I really, at COP, I'm hoping that those conversations can really come forward, especially amongst those Canadian First Nations, of which I'm a member and who I work with a lot, around the positionality of their conservation goals. I think there's a lot of conservation goals from Indigenous peoples, which are really overt, but there's less sort of coordinated positional statements to support and pressure governments to really be responsive to that. Canada signed the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, and committed to implementing legislation changes that reflect the articles of UNDRIP. And so I'm really excited to see some of that conversation too and some recommendations coming out of the Indigenous for how to really put those articles into some of those legislative changes to meet uh, the biodiversity goals, whether that's 30 by 30, as the case of the biodiversity agreements, but also even beyond and to uh, nature needs half. There's a lot to be done sort of in the interim in supporting those conversations as we're in this sort of transitionary period to national governments really recognizing Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous laws as rules on the land base around, whether they be around conservation or other uh, land-based determinations. So those types of conversations do need support. They do need advocates. They do need facilitation. They do need financing. They do need guidance in supporting a larger percentage of that population, if you will, of Indigenous spokespeoples, of Indigenous members, to be able to navigate um, sort of some of those political arenas, to be able to form alliances and partnerships which are mutualistic. Pragmatically, in that um, time, as we're hopefully developing more uh, concrete statements about the Indigenous conservation agenda that's being pointed and assertive with national state governments, that can be helpful. And then once those statements are completed and those positions are known, and, you know, there's a varying stages, like some have really assertive positions, some are still working on positions and we're collectively now trying to understand each other, learn from each other and maybe hopefully come up with that position. But once those positions or those um, sort of mandates, if you will, those directions to governments are really clarified and defined, then there's a lot of help needed to uh, help governments figure out how they will be responsive to those directives. So in the case of Canada, they've committed to the recognition of Indigenous law, the Indigenous rights Indigenous peoples have over their land, Indigenous rights to conservation, those kinds of things, right? And so how do they implement those things? There's a lot of work yet to be done as we move through that path. In Canada, we're, we're working through this pathway that, that some of my colleagues work on, sort of this conservation through reconciliation, right? So we have the political agenda of reconciliation um, couched in this conservation as reconciliation agenda, which I think is um, a really worthwhile way to do it. There's also a need to understand 
not only all of those sort of political relationships and stuff like that, but the economic impacts of switch, switching to a conservation-based agenda, an indigenous-led conservation-based agenda, right? How do indigenous people begin to understand all of that economic rationale and then communicate it effectively, right? So that we're asserting that that knowledge and power of, of understanding and scenario development effectively in conversations with government. Indigenous authority is, is everything. It so happens that Indigenous authority and Indigenous methodologies result in better biodiversity outcomes, for example, right? Result in better water quality. But fundamentally, for me, that self-determination that Indigenous people want to apply, we have an assumption that it's going to be default conservation-based. And typically, we see across the world that a lot of Indigenous people continue to advance their lifeways, which have been sustainable for millennia and millennia and millennia. There is a, a concern, I think, amongst the environmental organizations, perhaps, and even in, in governments, that if you sort of provide that authority to Indigenous people, then they will do whatever they want to do, right? And that's certainly true, and that may or may not be conservation, right? So this is um, something that I talk about a lot. It's like, well, what are we supporting? Are we supporting Indigenous people, or are we supporting Indigenous people who want to conserve? Are we supporting conservation as done by Indigenous people? Right. So there's that distinction between supporting indigenous people or supporting conservation by indigenous people. And I think that's something that needs to be needs to be thought through in terms of really understanding where each of us and our organizations is coming from in thinking about that support. And environmental organizations are having some crisis of identity, if you will, <laughs> around, you know, what they're trying to do. So conservation is now going to be done by indigenous peoples. Right. And the. Assumption is you're going to support Indigenous authority to determine, make those decisions that result in biodiversity outcomes. So that's why I think some of that conversation around that Indigenous peoples need to come together to have around sort of this positionality. Okay, yeah, it's going to be 30% of our territories or 50% of our territories. We're going to do coal mines on the other 20% or something like that, right? There's nations who want to do all kinds of different things, right? And so if you're like, well, we want to support Indigenous-led conservation. Our closest nation is here. And, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if you... We're into conservation, like, actually, no, we're really urban and we're going to do, you know, whatever we want to do. You know, that's an important nuance because there's so much momentum and enthusiasm for supporting Indigenous led conservation. Um, and I want to make sure that there's a much enthusiasm for supporting the uh, sort of underlying and foundational principles um, of Indigenous sovereignty and determination. This, this idea of sort of indigenous global sovereignty or solidarity, right? And, and it's a really important conversation and some of the initiatives that WILD's been thinking about too and sort of supporting that has been really, really good because I think, you know, there's this there's these separate conversations that are happening amongst indigenous. Some are like, it's a big land grab and, you know, the Amazon is going to be land grabbed by conservation groups and big government and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and then in Canada, it's like, well, this is an opportunity to get land back, right? So you have this whole spectrum of, Kind of um, of um, of perspective from the indigenous side about the the sort of fundamental premise of the goal in the first place, right? Um, so I think those things will will really uh, begin to come out in part of those conversations. So you've made it to the end of the podcast. We hope you've learned something. 
We hope you're filled with passion. And we hope you support not only us, but these individuals that you got to know through this podcast in their work, their important work that's about to come up. This is a fight that we're all in together. And this is not just for nature. This is for people too. This is about you and I and our future. So we hope that you raise your voices. We hope that you tell your communities. And we hope that you stay aware during COP15 about what's going on and amplify these important messages. To learn more and to get more involved, please visit wild.org slash conservation dash 101. All the info that you need is there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Wilderness. Thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Stay wild.